JJ, it's great to meet you. I'm familiar with your work. I was introduced to your work through friend of the stream and your friend as well, Greg. Uh, Dreg or J-Reg as people may know him. Mm -hmm. um, huge fan of his stuff. I know you are too. Indeed. I wonder if for my audience, you could give an introduction to your work and a little bit of your background. Okay, so I sort of have two uh, parallel jobs that I tend to uh, <laughs> lead with. Depending on who I'm talking to, I'll pick a different one. So I'm a professional YouTuber. Maybe that's more interesting to your uh, to your audience. So I've been making YouTube videos every week for about uh, six years or so. Um, I live here in Vancouver, Canada, and Canadian commentary, Canadian cultural commentary is a big part of what I do on my channel. I also talk a lot about sort of uh, American cultural issues, uh, sort of the three C's I mention in my, uh, in my sort of tagline for my channel is I talk about countries, culture, and Canada. And those are kind of like the big uh, categories that I think most of my video content falls into in one way or another. I'm not a super duper like serious uh, video essayist type. But I feel like, you know, I do I do commentary that's a bit more sort of substantial, I think, than some of the uh, the more kind of frivolous stuff. But that's sort of like one sort of side of me. And then the other side of me is I'm also a weekly columnist at The Washington Post. I work for what is called the Global Opinion section, sort of representing Canada. I'm one of their sort of Canadian representatives. And the way I describe what I do there is I write about Canadian politics for a global audience. So I write about Canadian issues in a way that is hopefully accessible to both Canadians and international uh, readers without being too condescending to either <laughs> to either uh, either group. So and that in turn sort of reflects a kind of larger arc of my professional career, which is that I have been, you know, a kind of pundit commentator type, you know, I've been writing and, and doing commentary on on Canadian television and the radio and so on for, you know, for at least a decade or so now. So yeah, I'm kind of got one foot in kind of old media world in terms of working for this very legacy newspaper. And then I've got obviously one foot in sort of new media world in terms of being a being a YouTuber. You do. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think I guess there's a number of reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because uh, as an artist, I've spent a lot of time working in institutional structures in universities and academia. Uh, and then in the last, let's say, two years, a little bit more than two years now, I've been making a lot of content and I find myself on the platforms and there are no editors and no gatekeepers. And um, I wanted to talk about some of the affordances of those different spaces and the kind of discourse that they create and, and this type of thing. But um, I think as a a broad intro to the conversation we're going to have today. You recently wrote an article in the Washington Post. It's an opinion piece, Are Millennial Leftists Aging into Right-Wingers? And this is, this is bait for Josh, because this is uh, <laughs> the topics that I really, really love to talk about. Um, I think you're familiar with a bunch of my stuff now, because we've had a few conversations in advance of this. But um, the topics that really interest me now and the unique affordances of the art space is to talk about broad ideological shifts and to scale jump and to really get um, experimental or utopian with our thinking. And we seem to be at a period where there is an ideological political shift, maybe a historical shift. We're at a, we're at a very unique period of history. Uh, and I've spent the last few years talking to young people who are very engaged in meme, political, subculture type of communities. And I chart their political journey from spaces on the left to the right and vice versa and all across the political spectrum. So I've spent 
the last few years at the fringes of the Overton window. Uh, and then maybe maybe you've been in the center of it, talking more so about not in a 40-year arc, but in like a four-year arc, doing political commentary. Yeah, and sure. I think on this particular article, we are converging our interests, and I think it'll be a generative conversation. Can I ask you to give a brief summary of the article for people who have not yet read it? Yeah. So, I mean, I should probably sort of lay down some of my cards just ahead of ahead of time as well. So, most of my sort of political commentary that I've done has been within sort of what I would describe as broadly center-right spaces in both Canada and the U.S. I actually spent a year working and writing for National Review, you know, the kind of preeminent conservative journal of opinion in America. So, I am observing the left as much more of an outsider. And that was uh, very much sort of what animated the writing of that column. You know, I have consumed uh, sort of aggressively kind of left-wing media. I think it's important to sort of consume a broad range of, of opinions. And what I've just noticed, though, is in consuming some of this aggressively sort of leftist American media, I have noticed a tendency where it does seem like that there is a bit of an arms race on the left in America these days left-wing commentators to just talk about how much they hate Democrats. And like that <laughs> becomes like the defining theme of the commentary more than anything else. It's like, all of the Democrats suck. I hate Biden. I hate Pelosi. I hate Schumer. They're all terrible. They're all corrupt. They do nothing for anyone. They're objectively the worst, the worst, the worst. And sometimes it crosses the line. That sort of rhetoric, it's so uh, intense sometimes that it even comes around. And then you start having people saying like, and yeah, all they do is they like, they bitch about Trump and he wasn't really that bad. And they're just like so hysteric. And they just use this as a way to like whip everybody up into a fury. Oh, Trump, he's the devil. He's the devil. And you know, like at some point to me, this style of rhetoric, which seems to be very popular in, in explicitly leftist spaces, starts to become a little indistinguishable, frankly, from conservative commentary. And so when I look at uh, the demographic of some of the people that are producing this kind of commentary that is, you know, endlessly beating up on the Democrats and, and engaging in some light Trump apologia, I dare say, um, I start to wonder if maybe this is less of an ideological phenomenon and maybe more of just a kind of phase of life that a lot of people tend to go through, which is, you know, it's kind of a bit of a cliche, the idea that people tend to get more conservative as they get older. But I think it's not one that we should dismiss simply because it is a cliche. You know, I think that you were speaking before about how, you know, we're in a sort of remarkable, unique political moment. And I mean, I think that's true to an extent. But on the other hand, I think that the phenomenon in American culture of people who were once like strident members of the proud left drifting into conservative Republican politics as they get older is a pretty, uh, is a pretty well-documented one. You know, I mentioned how I used to work at uh, National Review. Uh, National Review famously had a lot of sort of post-communists as part of its founding generation of editors, you know, men like uh, Whitaker Chambers and, uh, and uh, James Berman and people like that, like that used to be sort of strident members of the, of the sort of pre-World uh, War II, I think, kind of leftist generation, and then they drifted over to the right. You know, they, they went from sort of being Trotskyites who were opposed to Stalin to just kind of like people that were opposed to the Soviet regime overall, and then, you know, sort of drifted into, you know, quote unquote, neoconservatism and stuff like that. You had a similar phenomenon with, uh, 
you know, like sort of 60s radicals, you know, the people that are today the boomers that we regard as being the most kind of like regressive and and sort of a reactionary <laughs> demographic. But, you know, these were the people that were doing the sit-ins and the protesting the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. And you have people like, say, somebody like David Horowitz, you know, former editor of, uh, what was it, Ramparts magazine, you know, very strident leftist magazine in the 60s. You look at him now and he's this, you know, quite, I think, obnoxious sort of Trump Republican. And, you know, it's this and, this, and the same thing, like, uh, you know, and uh, David Brooks wrote a remarkable book that I was very fond of called Bobos in Paradise, which was largely about sort of documenting how a lot of the boomers kind of were able to make peace with, uh, you know, they were able to make peace, but with their sort of bohemian kind of countercultural identities, and then sort of new forms of of capitalist uh, sort of commerce and and so forth that emerged in like the eighties and the nineties and so forth. The kind of the Ben and Jerry's kind of flavor of capitalism, if we want to describe it. So, <laughs> uh, what I'm sort of trying to get at in that column is just that this is a phenomenon that has long. Uh, occurred that has occurred repeatedly throughout American history is that people that identify very strongly on the left start drifting into the right. And part of the way that they do that, like the path that they go down uh, in that regard, is that they start, it begins with sort of an underlying sense of contempt for their own tribe, which increasingly becomes more and more virulent to the point where that becomes the entirety of their political identity. And then they start to become a little Republican, a little uh, conservative curious, if nothing else. And then mm. before you know it, mm. uh, what started off as kind of a slight open-mindedness becomes an unironic political identity. There are so many factors that go into this that I'm just, I'm taking a few notes as you uh, talk. So let me try and not miss any of these things as we move forward. Uh, speaking of the millennial left, and I feel like there's an intellectual peer group of podcasters and things like this, right? So I'm trying to bracket out. If we're talking about millennial voters who are disenfranchised with the Bernie campaign or something like that, and now there's a sense of uh, identity or like a tribal affiliation that becomes so consuming and they basically irony poison themselves into then becoming the other side, right? They're, yeah. they're entangled uh, inextricably with the Democratic Party. That frustration is so overwhelming that they make a, a 180. In a two-party system, you, you just vote the other direction. So that's one part of it. Tribal affiliation is important. But then there's also this question of history. And I think that it's important to evaluate these things on the uh, very unlevel playing field that we currently are on. So bracketing out things like radical politics now, a lot of those seemed like common sense politics in the 1970s, right? So the idea to uh, wind back the clock before neoliberalism is a, you know, not a radical idea, but given the shifting Overton window of the past few years, we find ourselves much further down the spectrum to privatization. And this is where maybe the JREG and the politogram conversations start to come in because uh, evaluating these things in terms of left versus right begins to feel insufficient. And we now need to set up an XY grid of, uh, in a very LARPy, silly kind of way, authoritarianism to libertarianism. But uh, maybe there's a cultural progressivism and a cultural conservatism. And we just need more dimensions of resolution to be able to to get more granular with the conversation. So let me um, let me throw a few questions at you. And then you can kind of choose how you want to respond to these. Because I feel like there's different points, and and I appreciate that you're writing in a, a rather brief format because I've done it as well. This is going to be read by you know a, a million people at the scale that it gets published, so you want to have a very concise thing, but you have to compress a lot of information into these sentences. So 
For example, I can think of a Marxist organization in Chicago, but is organized uh, really all around the world, maybe primarily in Germany now. I'm thinking of the Platypus-affiliated society, uh, the chief pedagogue of which released an essay in, I think, 2016 called Why Not Trump? And this was a somewhat satirical provocation of you know, how bad are the Democrats? Like, is it a useful thought experiment to just push yourself to the other side? And and that sounds very much aligned with what you're talking about. But the size of that group is something like, I want to say a few hundred people. And my sense is that in the article, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people making a relatively small leap across the Overton window to uh, vote in the other direction, rather than like a Marxist uh, shift from being a Trotskyist in the 1920s to then becoming like uh, a neocon or a member of the Reagan administration. Yeah, but it is possible that in the period of a similar ideological transformation, maybe the Trotskyist to neocon pipeline or the counterculture to cyberculture, which is the, maybe a more recent version of this, people drifting left to right, very broadly using those terms. Is there a trickle-down effect where those big ideological shifts then result in people making the relatively small leap and voting the other uh, direction? What is the sense of the audience that you have in mind? Is it Are we talking about hundreds of people or are we talking about millions? Well, I suppose the way that I was sort of thinking about it is, is the idea of kind of elite thought leaders kind of uh, creating a permission structure to their audience. Are to, we elite you know, thought leaders right now doing a we, podcast? We are. Yes, <laughs> of course we are, because we're on a podcast and we're talking about politics, right? Like, it's not something that uh, normal people do. But, you know, if, if, if you think that, you know, people that have podcasts or YouTube channels or Twitch streams are very popular, you know, Twitter accounts or whatever, if they're consistently uh, pushing certain types of rhetoric, then that does trickle down. And it does, as I said, create a permission structure in which, you know, a sort of broad audience, broad audience of voters are sort of enabled to maybe indulge in political uh, curiosities that they might have otherwise felt some stigma towards. So Mm -hmm. if you're listening, if you consider yourself, you know, a person of the left, and yet you're listening to you're consuming media that does nothing but, you know, hate on Democrats, and maybe even, yeah, apologize for Trump or make excuses for Trump or suggest that he's not so bad and that the modern Republican Party, you know, is has some things going for it, you know, at least they're principled, at least they say what they mean, you know, at least they're honest, you know, you hear this kind of rhetoric all the time. And so what I'm just kind of saying is that if you sort of layer on that permission structure coming from a sort of high level intellectual place, coupled with the the general inclination of, I think, people to get more conservative as they get older, as they own property, as they have families, and frankly, just as you start to lose touch a bit with the culture of the youth, right? If you think of people, you know, in, in their 30s like us who are getting older, you know, I'm close to 40 now. And it's true, like you do start to realize that uh, it becomes harder to stay on top, particularly in, in, in the realm of social issues, you know, it becomes harder to relate to the sort of causes that are animating young people, it becomes harder to like understand, you know, the language of young people, the prior the uh, priorities of young people, and so forth. So you do like there is a kind of like fuddy duddy ism that sets in. And then that can be sort of rationalized politically as well. And I talk about this in my column, right? Like, I think that, for example, when we think of the boomers, 
uh, and their sort of descent into sort of conservatism. One thing that you often, I remember, because like I'm a gay man, and so I remember uh, very much sort of the debate over gay rights and uh, gay marriage, particularly in the in the early 2000s. And I remember that there was a lot of boomers in those days who would come out and sort of say, you know, I supported feminism, I supported civil rights back in the day. Those were legitimate causes. This business of men marrying men, that's just like crazy postmodern nonsense. Like I did my part fighting for what mattered. I'm not going to go sign up for this latest like lunatic crusade that all of the crazy kids are into. And I feel like I hear that same kind of rhetoric, for example, when it comes to trans rights Mm. in some corners of the the identified uh, left, right? It's kind of like, you know, I fought for gay marriage. Gay marriage made a lot of sense. It was an important cause. But now the kids are talking about, you know, anyone can be anything and all gender is meaningless and what are your pronouns and blah, 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 blah. And I hear a kind of contempt that I think is in part informed just by a process of aging and finding the causes of the youth of today kind of alienating and weird and uncomfortable for a lot of people. And, you know, and I think that that, I think much more than the economic issues, a kind of imagined revulsion at the social uh, priorities of the kind of the new progressivism that, you know, we see on social media and in the schools and elsewhere and stuff. I feel like a lot of self-identified leftists are do feel a, a degree of revulsion towards this kind of new social politics and are using that in part a way to kind of uh, rationalize their own drift away from it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is, this is very interesting. Um, okay, because I feel like there's, there's two things that are bundled up here and I'm going to try and um, untether them and you let me know if this sounds accurate to you. Yep. Because I feel like there's tribal affiliation, which is uh, very important. And there's uh, something that I would probably agree with here that there's uh, a very influential group of media figures that identify as left and spend a lot of time like constructing an identity around hating the Democratic Party, which is, uh, to be honest, totally fun and uh, engaging. But Mm. um, that becomes it becomes permission for people to then explore other types of identities, right? There's a cultural avant-garde that is taking shape in this media formation. I'm curious also if you have particular podcasts or streams or content creators in mind. Um, Let me just read this quote for a piece of context because the article opens, uh, quote, I was listening to a podcast the other day featuring two hard left Americans in their late 30s. I won't name names, but you know the type. Socialist intellectuals who use terms like dissident to describe themselves. So you can, I understand it's political if we talk about somebody else on a podcast. I think everyone has a general sense of who these characters are. But if there's somebody you want to name to peg this to, it would maybe be be useful. But this is my, this is my other contention, is that those tribal affiliations uh, and basically who you are based on the media you consume, really influential, right? But there is the, the second question, which is who then gets politically activated? And of the, say, for example, 10 million listeners to a popular podcast, do 1 million of them go out and vote in a certain direction? Is it a 10% rate of activation, a 10% conversion rate? Is it 20%? Is it 5%? And those numbers really skew. You have to do a very qualitative read on these things because one of these, say, for example, my favorite uh, thing that I, I wrote about this for The Guardian and the entire media slept on it and forgot about it, that Destiny, the Twitch streamer, was for two weekends in a row, the largest canvassing operation during the Georgia Senate runoffs, and um, bigger than the fucking Democratic Party. And nobody knew about it, apparently. Like, no one wrote about it. And I wrote about it, I don't know, like three, six months later, something. Um, And this was totally shocking to the editors and, and no one else. But it would seem that that is, you know, an astronomical conversion rate of just audience size to 
on the ground activation. And um, that dwarfs some really, really large channels in an important way. So, uh, okay, but before I lose track of the, the more important point here, um, one could consider, say, the worst case scenario of this is that there are large media channels that are actually very, that have very low activation rates, are not um, are not able to mobilize their followings to actually vote or canvas or do anything. And then the sliding ground, the tilted ground that we're on is actually that when you talk about aging, I think you're also lumping in the accumulation of wealth, which is yes. what you've said in a few instances, right? You accumulate property. And just as you get older, you have a few things you want to safeguard what you have. Um, I think that the process of privatization and working life in both of our countries has been so degrading and is on such a downward, a steep downward trajectory that my sense is that the people who are being in the Marxist term proletarianized, but something that you and I care about very much, actually the rapid erosion of the middle class and Mm. opportunity to move up in the world that is declining so quickly that I think people, they may not make that leap as they get older, they may not accumulate wealth. And so they won't have much to safeguard in terms of say voting from a working class position to like voting in the position of being a small business owner. Right. (laughs) This is also just not to get too meta on it, but like you and I are like almost the same age and we're both white men from upper middle class backgrounds who comment on politics. And I'm obviously on the left, you're on the right, but we are of this same demographic that the political content creators are like contesting over, right? Like opinions are being swayed and those are the people who can be moved between these right, left, if that is useful, political parties of like, what is in your material interest? Yes, right? yes. Like if, you're, if you're purely motivated to safeguard your own material interest, does that vote align with the Democrats or the Republicans? And in the era of like, post heterodox Trump, you know, a lot of these policies that sounded interested in, in just satisfying your like base material needs that were not represented by the Democratic Party, the idea of like bringing back jobs and opportunity and reshoring industry and everybody getting health care, like that 2016 rhetoric, that's a, that's a shift. And we're still, we're still playing out the effects, the cascading effects of that realignment. So yes, yeah, yes, I gave yes. you, I gave you a lot there, but let me ask you about the question of, of history. Do you feel, do you feel like that's a fair assessment? And uh, maybe that's the most vital of the questions that I put forward. I mean, one thing, though, that I, I just wanted to add in response to the previous thing, because I think you did hit on something that was very, very critical, right? It, when I'm talking about permission structures, I do think it is very important that sort of we understand the Trumpist, uh, like you sort of said, kind of like post-Reaganite, uh, you know, populist uh, working man's appeal, you know, mobilization of the white working class, all of, you know, this sort of traditional cliches, bringing back the job and all that. That becomes another permission structure, right? There becomes a new permission structure that, uh, frames the Trumpified Republican Party as basically not being like the old time Republican Party, and and in many ways, you know, quote unquote, not being as bad from a progressive perspective as the old Re- uh, Reaganite Republican Party. Uh, sorry, just as as bad in terms of what? As as bad in well, terms like if, of- if 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 you're if you're coming at this from a, from a from a left wing perspective, where you believe that sort of like the the great sin of the Republican Party from Reagan onward is has been its kind of like naked unapologetic embrace of of neoliberalism of of you know Reaganomics of ultra capitalist you mm, know okay, okay deregulation all this kind of thing right like if you believe globalization and so on if you believe that that was the worst thing about the Republican Party then you cannot help but look at a Trumpified Republican Party that has rejected 
rejected a lot of that orthodoxy as being newly attractive, right? Totally. You know, whether totally. or not whether or not Trump, you know, in power actually proceeded to uh, fulfill that mandate is, I think, something <laughs> that I think the left should be a little bit more. Uh, some of these left wing people that we're discussing should perhaps be a little bit more uh, critical of, and perhaps hold Trump a little bit more accountable to what degree his rhetoric actually matched his actions. Hmm. But that's, uh, you know, that's a sort of another issue. The, the The point is just that he is making the party at least superficially more attractive in some ways to the orthodox uh, economic left. But the additional point I would just make is that. Um, when we think about like, well, what is economic justice, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret that. If we accept the premise that our generation is, as I, I think is fair, you know, is experiencing sort of unique uh, economic malaise, if the dream of the middle class seems farther off than it was, you know, a generation ago and so on, you know, what is the response to that? And what do we expect our poli- how do we expect our politicians to respond? And one thing that I think the Trumpified Republican Party has done in a way that has been attractive to, frankly, some of these left-wing people is that he has been uh, unapologetic and the intellectuals that enable him have been unapologetic in just sort of going to war against symbols of corporate America, right? You know, like you, you see now all the time the Republicans say corporate as a pejorative adjective in front of everything that they say, you know, the corporate media, the corporate this, the corporate Democrats, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and as well, they go after things like woke capitalism, right? Like the idea that, uh, you know, the companies, uh, these heartless corporations are just giving us rainbow Oreos and Black Lives Matter t-shirts and this kind of stuff. And it's all just this kind of like superficial nonsense that doesn't actually mean anything for any actual working people. And it's, you know, just a bunch of cover for them to go ahead and do their evil capitalist things, right? Like that type of rhetoric you hear as much these days from, you know, the the right-wing populists as you do from the the, the left-wing populists. And so again, this becomes another permission structure, right? If you start to define economic justice as merely a kind of like rejection of corporate marketing or corporate propaganda, or like a willingness to kind of do battle with these kind of corporate figureheads and their very high profile, you know, virtue signals or whatever you want to call it, you know, that becomes another possible inroad, right? If we're moving away from a politics that is really as fixated on orth- uh, on economic uh, philosophy one way or another, and it's instead just becoming defined by, you know, these kind of superficial battles as I would see them, in part because the underlying problems of our modern economy are just too daunting and too intimidating for people on either side to engage with. Well, if that's the nature of the politics, then that style of politics, the politics of doing high profile battle against symbolic embodiments of of, uh, of a distasteful form of, of modern capitalism. Well, yeah, again, a lot of people will find that compelling. But sorry, I went on a wild tangent. Your your initial question was that you were asking me about the, the history. Can you reframe that a bit? Well, my wager is that um, I want to I, I want to ask you about the um, about contrarianism as well. Um, but okay, so just to rephrase the the question, because I think this is entangled with neoliberalism and declining quality of life across the advanced world and uh, uh, productivity and wages being divergent since the yes. 1980s up until now. Um, my sense is that people will not be able to accumulate the property mm. that mm. then causes their party affiliation to shift as it had in, in years previous. So to, uh, yes. the, the Trotskyists who then became the neoconservatives and for maybe for people who are not familiar because we're using terms neoliberal and neoconservative we mean quite literally um 
the Reagan administration. Uh, it, the terminology gets very slippery here. Uh, yes. But there was a tremendous uh, growing pie and productivity and uninterrupted prosperity. And um, that, I mean, that is a, a, a wonderful thing. It yielded the most prosperous uh, society that has ever existed. And the, yeah, that is, that is uh, I think, undeniably a, a good thing. But uh, it does seem to be a unique period of historical development that may not be possible to to replicate. And part of the promise of technologization and platformization and all of these new, say, YouTube and podcasts and iPhones and whatever, there was a hope that through these technology, uh, these new technologies, we would recapture that explosive productivity that happened in the the, the post-World War II period. So uh, it's it's understandable in some ways how people who had those ideas in the 1920s, then by the 1960s and 80s felt very differently because they were in a really flourishing society. And it was impossible to ignore just, uh, you know, we grew up in literally a tenement building of nine people in a single family home. And now everyone owns a home, has property, has a car and, and whatever. But uh, that upward mobility is historically unique. And if now we're in a period where people are again living in intergenerational homes and there's not enough uh, uh, employment and opportunities, um, I don't know if they can make that same switch. So will the cultural tribal affiliation in your mind be enough to push people over that wedge or over that, um, that leap if they don't have the property to back it up? Yeah, so that's a, that's a tremendously good way of framing it, and that's that's a very insightful, I think, rebuttal to some of the premises that my kind of theory is is based on. Um, I guess there's just a kind of couple of things that I would say. Like one thing is that I think, you know, I'm not an economist, uh, but I can say that I, having looked at some of the numbers, I do think that our generation can sometimes get a little self pitying. I think that we can sometimes mm-hmm. get a little overblown in just like, quote unquote, how bad we have it. I, I think that yes, by certainly the property metric is I think one of like the weirdest outliers. And I'm from Vancouver, which has some of the most expensive and overinflated property prices in the entire world. So like, I don't know anybody who is living in the way that like my parents did at my age, or like, you know, I think when I was a kid, you know, you go on your little play dates and like every, my friend, Matthew, I remember his father was like a furniture salesman and they have like a house with multiple rooms and things like that style of middle-class life just seems so far off now. Right. Like, and so that's like, that's a very real thing to be sensitive to and thus sort of to fit into your premise of like, if that type of middle-class lifestyle is, is just so unobtainable, then it logically follows that maybe the form of middle-class politics that say Matthew's dad had wouldn't necessarily be prevalent in our generation. But that said, I, I, I don't think that we are a generation of paupers by any stretch. Like I don't think that we are so destitute that the life that we live has no resemblance at all to the middle-class material success of, of our parents' generation. But I, I want to, you know, I don't want to get too deep into that because I'm, I'm, perfectly willing to concede that perhaps things are as bad as they've ever been. And perhaps we are uniquely indigent, uh, sort of suffering generation. But my, I guess what I would say in response to that as well is just that if we assume that that is the case, if we are uniquely suffering, well, then there does become a question of like, well, what has the, the left's response to that been? Has the left offered a viable, attractive political agenda that will continue to be attractive to people as they age and as they, you know, 
become more sort of settled in their jobs, however unsatisfying those jobs might be. And my argument would be that in many ways, I don't think the left has. So at least like if we're going to say like the capital L, like further to the left of the Democrat That's kind the, of scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Are we talking yeah. AOC or yeah. Bernie right, or right, are we right. talking like uh, Adorno, you know? You know like no, I know. And I know that sort of in leftist spaces, people are very precious about some of this kind of language. So I, I want to be sort of sensitive to that. It gets infinitely granular. It does. Yeah. But like, but like, let's just kind of say like, if we're talking about sort of like the populist kind of left wing sort of Bernie types, AOC types, the podcaster types and whatnot, mm-hmm. like, is their political agenda, is their economic agenda in response to the economic malaise of our generation? Is it an attractive one? Or does it come off as just kind of utopian and and silly? Like, is their agenda just, well, capitalism sucks, there should be no capitalism. And it's like, okay, like, I like we can agree with that in theory, but is that an actionable game plan, right? And if it's not, then again, we get to sort of what I'm sort of saying before, then you're sort of uh, economic justice that manifests in other ways, such as like, you know, the Trumpy appeal to just like the corporations are bad and like, let's get on our high horse and denounce them and make fun of them and that kind of stuff. And then that becomes really the only kind of entrance into a kind of economic justice agenda, even if it is superficial and ridiculous. You know, it, it's 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 more that kind of stuff seems more attractive and more relevant to the lives of more people than just saying like capitalism sucks, we should abolish capitalism and, or something like that. That's obviously never going to happen. Right. Yeah. That's a, so this is the very peculiar moment that we exist in the discourse and um, with a, a type of party realignment, maybe that's happening as well. So Frequently discussed on the podcast and the like intellectual uh, milieu, uh, the media ecosystem, maybe is the better term that you're describing. Uh, people talk about the professional managerial class, which is we went back to the original, what was the year, 1970, 1971. Um, John and Barbara Ehrenreich wrote uh, an essay in, is it Radical America? Is that the name of it? Where we looked at the actual definition of the professional managerial class, which is a bit different than how people use it now. But um, in effect, there is a a very pronounced problem today where we have very left-wing rhetoric that seems to be most useful in recuperating, uh, flattering the good nature of wealthy financiers in the uh, nonprofit sector or NGOs or something like that, or journalists or, or different types of things. So there's a suturing of this very working class, radical socialist rhetoric, and then these ultra elite politics and um, flows of funding and things like that. And trying to map this out, what it looks like is that there's an alliance on the democratic side, broadly speaking, the the left or the, the practical left of how you could politically act between precarious freelance slash working class, very much at the bottom of the economic ladder uh, and the top. And then on the Republican side, there is an alliance between the middle and a different section of the top. So there's this infra ruling class dispute that has picked gerrymandered maybe is a better term for it alliances that are very strategic pitting the middle against the bottom Uh, and it would seem to me that the difficult work of doing the discourse is finding spaces where the bottom and the middle could get some of the resources that have drifted all the way to the top during the neoliberal era that would seem to be the bridge that you're trying to walk across. There's going to be um, uh, an unbelievable accumulation of wealth at the the very top. 
Yeah, but I, I do I do see what you're getting at. I think there's um, it's helpful to break this down into, I think this, fra- this framing comes from Thomas Piketty where he talks about the Brahmin left and he talks about the merchant right where there's uh, a weird kind of NGO clerisy or this um, rhetoric that is very moralizing and punitive, um, but then is also next to these very like elite philanthropic flows where you get, you know, uh, like woke mortgages and, and things like that. Um, and then there's this other type of politics, which is the kind of middle class Republican politics, which has in some ways receded to the background because I think the the populist rhetoric is of a, a lower middle class. I know that you've done some videos breaking down these different gradations yeah. as, as well. Um, but that 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 populist kind of uh, say JD Vance or heterodox Trump rhetoric uh, is not targeted. I think at the small business owners um, on a rhetorical sense and certainly in like a policy sense, it, well, it benefits them less than the, the ultra elites. But um, I think that that idea of like material security is targeting that very precarious lower middle class. Yeah. Um, and so I, again, I have to return to this framing that, um, yeah, having an alliance with an elite is going to be unsustainable given the, the, the rapid decline. And I think it is, I understand. Um, I'm sympathetic to the idea that millennials are sometimes we whine a little bit too much. Like we certainly have it worse than the Xers and the boomers. But I think in terms of extrapolating out some of these curves in the face of catastrophic climate change, the Gen Z kids may have it like really bad. Like we, we should allow for the possibility that the level of breakdown given extreme weather and fortifying our cities to uh, experience catastrophic floods and stuff like that, um, that, that, could be a type of breaking point that, um, yeah, yeah, leads into a whole slew of other political scenarios. Yes, and I, I mean, I and I think it's it's uh, it's. I mean, this is sort of a question that I think the 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 left wing has to sort of ask themselves when it comes to an issue like climate change. Like, why is that not priority number one? Like, why are we fighting over you know economic issues or cultural issues or or you know battling over which Democrat is pure enough and that kind of thing? If this crisis is at such an existential level that it should really, and I think this is something that's quite striking when I when I I talk to uh, younger people, Zoomers, and I'm sure it is as well, to the degree that they view that as basically the central question of politics, like the, the uh, dealing with catastrophic climate change is climate. the purpose of politics, yeah. right? And so all of this other kind of stuff that we're talking mm. about in a kind of theoretical roundabout way, you know, becomes, uh, seems as quite irrelevant, right? Like that is ultimately not the fundamental right. cleavage that right. any political system should be based on. But our generation, as much as we often give lip service to climate change as something that we care a lot about, I just think that when you look at the, the, the actual rhetoric, the actual prior priorities, the actual things that a lot of, you know, people within our generation, including people on the left, I mean, especially, I mean, the right has no interest in this issue at all. But if we're talking about people on the left, right, like, how often are they actually making climate change their priority versus, you know, a kind of economic justice agenda or, or sort of things like that issues that they frankly like talking about more. I mean, this is I think as somebody who's been in political commentary for a long time, this is always one of like the great challenges, right? Like, to what degree? Are your priorities dictated by simply what you like talking about, what is fun for you to talk about, what you know a lot about personally, and then sort of sort of scratches a kind of intellectual itch in, in your own mind? And this is like, and it's the same thing with the uh, with the Democrats, right? Like attacking Democrats. Like you said earlier, like it's fun. It is fun. Republicans say the same thing. Like I remember <laughs> once hearing an interview with like a talk radio guy where he sort of said like he was a right wing talk radio guy. And he said, I'll never do an episode 
that has better audience engagement than when I'm bashing other Republicans, right? There is something like uniquely satisfying about attacking your own side that people really get a thrill out of, regardless if you're on the right or the left. But the question is like, is this the best use of our time? And as somebody who's in political commentary myself, like I do think about this a lot, like, well, what should I be talking about? And are the issues that matter are they the ones that i personally like talking about and if if there's a disconnect there then am i in the wrong line of business right it's a it's 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 a it's a challenging uh, it's a challenging game because in addition you know to all the other sort of economic cultural transformations we're seeing there have never been there has never been a sort of larger class of like public intellectuals of people like you and I who make a living <laughs> yes, that's just true. talking about stuff, right? Like just intellectualizing yes. politics, theorizing politics, you know, gamifying politics, you know, turning it into art or entertainment or whatever else. It's never been, there's never been a greater time to be a person who engages at politics at that level. But there's always the question of whether or not that is, uh, is what the world needs the most right now. It's also the thing that is driving the, you know, the Democratic Party is in the US should be two different parties where there should be a labor party and then there should be these other interests that are uh, finance or middle class or management. And every political party represents um, a diverse group of uh, several yes. groups, right? And so the, the inequalities between the groups that are represented by the Democratic Party is creating something that seems unsustainable to a lot of the people who have been in one or either or of those many groups, right? So there's there's some contradictions inside of the party structure. I think that there's a major collection of people who are in this role in society who are working at NGOs or nonprofits or something like that, that is, um, they are taking a lot of value out of the economy. Um, and it seems to be immiserating a lot of the other people who would be lumped into the democratic uh uh, voter base. Uh-huh. So yes, that is that is something that's a real present and uh, it's going to create a contradiction that will lead to some dash- disastrous results maybe down the, the line. But um, the thing the thing that I want to ask you is that I, I feel like there's a media element of this as well that we are maybe enmeshed in in the process in that, uh, say, for example, the pundit class, which would probably be part of this professional managerial, you know, elite aspirant group, they excel in a new media ecosystem that thrives on contrarianisms and grains of sand that become disproportionately magnified. So, for example, if you have very heterodox ideas, you get a larger audience by engaging on this side, but also on that side. And people listen to you, and then they kind of quite they can't quite make sense of you and they Streisand affect what you're doing. So things that seem or represent like rather small groups, disparate fringe opinions, then get blown up by orders and orders of magnitude. So we end up in a media ecosystem where it's very difficult to index like what is the popular sentiment? Uh, and, And maybe there's an alignment between the punditry class that is very clearly, I think, financially incentivized through the way that this content is monetized to spend, uh, kind of as you said before, like get those ratings, get people in who will click, who will buy, sell ad views, what have you. And they just shit on, (laughs) if they're from the right, they shit on the right. And if they're from the left, they shit on the left. And this drives another type of polarization where you get this ultra dedicated group that really cares about this thing, but ultimately represents a very small fringe interest or, or whatever. Yes. So um, this is this is the funny period too, because um, 
we're each in unique positions where we have a foot in the old world of institutional structures or legacy media, and then a foot in the new world. And most people are exclusively in one or the other. So I feel like we have a, a mirror position here of um, articulating arguments to the other side, but also having to articulate arguments to your own side. And uh, very often you end up in a situation where the people who are from your side have a tribal identity and are not interested to resolve the problems that ostensibly brought them to this channel to learn more about. And what they want is shitting on the Democrats rather than fixing the issue or something. Yeah. And, and it's very clear that people who exist only within the platforms like YouTube or podcasts or whatever, they're like fish in water and they can't understand. They can't really sense how the incentives and the networks, the platforms that they operate within are shaping even the ideas that they can have. They're not aware that they're in a reward system for having these contrarian opinions. Yes. Um, and then there's the, this other like old media or institutional structure that is kind of codified and it's very hard to break up and things take a very long time to change. And there's gatekeepers and hierarchies and there's uh, you know somebody at the top who will okay, you are now just kicked out of this organization and you can't find your way up and it's totally opaque and it doesn't have those uh, competitive opportunities that the platforms afford that you can just, if I accumulate more followers and my grain of sand causes more inflammation, then I can attract some interest to my cause and, and what have you. So let me phrase this as a question to you because I think you will have some insights on this topic. What are the particular affordances of each of those spaces that you operate in? Is the institutional legacy media structure becoming more like the platforms that you have to write in a sensationalist clickbait type of way? Or is the discourse on the platforms becoming more institutional that it requires more research, more citations and more fact checkers? Uh, yeah. What do, you, what do you find are the particular affordances of discourse in either of those? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I do think that in some ways they are coming to resemble each other more and more and that they are becoming less and less distinct spaces and that the rules that govern success in one are increasingly applicable to the other. You know, I just wrote a piece for the Washington Post, a very esoteric Canadian issue, I suppose, about why uh, why our beloved queen, Elizabeth II, should perhaps uh, think about resigning. And it's like, you know, was that the most important issue in the world? Probably not. But I kind of had a sense that it would probably play well, it would get some clicks, it was a little provocative. And, you know, I'm sensitive, I want to do a good job for my editors and get stuff, you know, I'm, I'll do a dry column on some esoteric Canadian thing next week, right? So like there does become a sort of sense where there, mm -hmm. and the, I know this from having worked in, in sort of conventional media that everybody's consuming these, uh, even though they, in theory, it's something's like the Washington Post is a newspaper, you know, the majority of people are consuming it online. And so it becomes, uh, you know, subject to the traditional, uh, you know, rules of the online marketplace. But then on the other hand, you know, when I make an article in, uh, or when I make a video in for YouTube, I know that there is a lot more accountability in that space because that space is now getting much more crowded huh. with very uh, serious thinkers who will make long, thoughtful videos on, on serious, important social and, and political topics. And if you do a bad job, because the ecosystem is so robust now, not only from the audience, but from fellow creators, like if you play fast and loose with your facts, you will be called out the same way that if somebody publishes a bunch of crap in the Washington Post, they'll be called out. People will make rebuttal videos or write long essays, sort of deconstructing all the things you got wrong. So the accountability is very strong, I think, in the YouTube space right now. Like, is there a lot of misinformation? Sure, there is. But a lot of that misinformation will also be explicitly called out. So I do think, yeah, there is 
accountability there in a way that, uh, you know, the kind of the stereotypical uh, view of, of YouTube is just, you know, a hive of cat videos or whatever. I think that's kind of an outdated, uh, <laughs> an outdated assumption. In the same way, though, frankly, if we're going to take shots at the mainstream media, I think there is a lot of sensationalism in the mainstream media now. And I often feel that as much as people you know, talk about what is the dominant bias in the media? You know, is it a left-wing bias? Is it a right-wing bias, corporatist bias, whatever? I often think that sensationalism, which I think in many ways transcends ideology, is really the most pervasive bias that you see in the press. I would say, as somebody that's worked in mainstream media organizations for a very long time, there's a lot of competitiveness. A lot of these organizations are bleeding money. Anytime I ever talk to like a, an editor or a corporate person on the side of the corporate media, like the biggest anxiety they have is just how hard it is to make money. Right. And then the only way that you sort of recuperate from that is, is by, uh, you know, by burying your competitors, by getting more clicks, by getting more eyeballs. And that becomes very transactional and sensationalistic. It's an arms race. It is absolutely an arms race. Right. And it's not, it's, and it's not about just like, you know, this kind of Chomskyan idea of like manufacturing consent or whatever, like a lot of it is just like, well, what do the public want? Like, will they click on this? Is this the kind of thing? Does it have characters that they know and relate to? You know, if I write an article and it has like Justin Trudeau in the headline, like that'll get more clicks because he's like a character and people have strong feelings about him one way or the other. So the the main conclusion is, yes, that the two different forms of media, new media and old media, they're, they're not so different. They're becoming, yeah, the introduction of fact checkers and what used to be more of a competitive playing field on the platforms is becoming more institutional. And there's there are more parameters, obviously, the Overton window, the there's a narrowing window of what you can say politically on the platforms. And yeah, yeah, they are converging, they are converging. But uh, for a while, they were very, very different. And I think that what I have come to you in the last few years is that these platforms are in some ways responsible for the erosion of the middle class. And there's a media layer to it, but there's also a financial layer in that shopping malls that would employ people are then replaced by Amazon. And um, a medallion uh, license for like a yellow cab or something in New York that would previously be akin to a mortgage and a pathway to the middle class life. Um, this is now devalued so intensely by being outcompeted by Uber that it evacuates the possibility for economic mobility and um, uh, uh, a middle class life for, for many of those people. This is this is the other side of it. I'm, I haven't fully figured this out yet, but I feel like we are, in some ways, we're running the risk of naturalizing sensationalism and the media ecosystem that we currently exist in, uh, like sharing a sensationalist article or something like that. That definitely happens, and people do it all the time, and they follow a lot of their worst instincts, and the internet is libidinal, and it's got uh, porn and violence and outrageous things, and all, all of that exists. But... I also imagine if there was an internet where you had to pay to post, for example, just as a silly thought experiment, if it cost you five cents every time you shared a sensationalist article, would you do it? Would it run in the same way? Because I feel like this infinite chasing of scale has resulted in creating a bad media ecosystem, which is inflaming the very real middle-class antagonisms that both you and I are interested to preserve. And so there's a, a, 
one of these Jenga blocks needs to be pulled <laughs> loose. Either we got to have um, a serious overhaul of the financial system and the possibility for stability and opportunity, or we need to like wipe out the media system. I guess that's what the the new like fact check regime of social media is attempting to to reconstitute, yeah. right? That it's actually gotten way, way out of control and it needs to be reeled back in. And there's got to be some some type of consensus reality because otherwise we're just, we're shredding the social fabric and we're balkanizing into these really fringe atomized groups that don't share a consensus. And all of that is a media problem, but the media problem on top of the real financial problem, the economic problem is like converges on crisis. Well, you know, right? what one thing that sort of popped into my mind as you were saying that, Joshua, is, is something that I've been sort of thinking about a lot, particularly as it relates to America. And this even connects back to what I was just sort of saying about uh, the political parties and all of that is, you know, we in many ways, I think, and I think this is something the left will often not concede, but I think that we live in a quite remarkably democratic age in a sort of small D sense, in the ter- sense of like how much power your individual has over determining the course of and the direction of so many large institutions, be they political parties, be they the media, be they these, these large tech companies and so on and so forth. The problem is, though, that I think that you realize, and this is something that's hard for me to grapple with because I like to think of myself as a very pro small D Democrat kind of type of person. If you think of like how if the public is given tremendous control of these kinds of institutions, do they inevitably drift in the direction of of sensationalism or extremism or just kind of like thoughtless, know nothing populism? Because at the end of the day, that seems to be what some critical mass of the public actively wants. Like at, if you completely democratize your political parties, they want civil war. They want they want to LARP well, civil not, war. Well, not, well, I wouldn't go that far per se, but perhaps some of them do. I mean, geez, Louise, if you're a Republican mm-hmm. and you like run in a primary saying like, let's kill all the Democrats, you probably would get some decent <laughs> support for saying that, right? Like that there is a sort of in the same way that, you know, if you produce like the most deranged form of pornography or whatever, like it'll probably skyrocket to the top of the charts, right? Like there is a degree to which if you create institutions that are solely accountable to the public, they will decay in a kind of repulsive direction, it seems. And this is a very difficult thing to concede because we don't want to, but it's hard to concede because there are these two positions that so many people on both the right and the left in all sort of flavors of of, uh, extremism or moderation just have a hard time reconciling with, which is this idea like everybody wants to be anti-elite, but everybody also doesn't want the mob to be in complete control. And I really do feel that this is the biggest challenge of our time in some ways is how can we get a balance between, you know, a mob that we fear and hate and don't trust and elites who we also fear and hate and don't trust. And I think it is very easy for people to just kind of use, like let the people rule like more democratization as a kind of like, you know, kind of airy hand wave kind of thing. But I think there's a lot of ways in which you can look at contemporary America and you can say, there are problems that are being caused in our contemporary society that are precisely the effect of the public having as much power as they do. You know, it's it's hard to concede because everybody wants to believe that the public is wise and that the public is, you know, virtuous and the public is always on, you know, quote unquote, our side. And that if we could just give the public more power, they would sort of sort everything out for themselves. But I don't know. I just think that that's often not the case. And I think that when we talk about the sensationalism of the media, you know, the decay of the Republican Party or, or conservative politics in general, I would say, 
I think that a lot of this does come down to to uh, to very high degrees of public control, as opposed to the kind of conventional belief that it's just kind of some sort of shadowy elite kind of puppeteering the masses to do things they don't want to do. I think, well, when you say that there are more opportunities for small d democratic input, I'm taking that to mean opportunities to voice your opinion on social media, to uh, post on YouTube, to um, have your message heard by a and large to vote with your And to vote of, with your pocketbook, I would say, or to vote literally <laughs> in ele- democratic elections, right? Vote where to spend your money, things like that. I, I think so. Um, but... I think people have less money to spend than they did in eras previously. And I think boycotts are, uh, it's, it's difficult to boycott when the necessary goods for survival are so expensive. It's difficult to boycott your rent. You know, I mean, people literally do that and they organize a tenants union or, or something like that. And uh, those are some of the more successful organize, organizing activities that people have gotten up to in recent years. But um, it's, it's very difficult to, to really meaningfully boycott for an extended period of time. My sense is that the cleavage within the Democratic Party between those two, those two groups that have now diverging interests, the discourse that we're seeing privileged in these platform spaces is a result of that financial economic divergence between the two groups in that you get things that are um, very cancely, very woke, very um, ways to take out the competition that is maybe one rung above you. And then you get a little bit of upward mobility in whatever uh, employment or institutional context that you're living in. But uh, I don't think that people really have a meaningful democratic input. I think there's a, you can be very loud and you can expose your message to a lot of people, but I think it, uh, it it mostly doesn't have an effect. It's kind of like screaming into a closet. And so the only thing that really does have an effect because there's such a narrowing window of opportunity for upper middle class life or even just middle middle class life uh, is that people are becoming extremely cutthroat and really vicious in these elite sectors of society. And then they take the things like podcasts and they take the things like social media and they inflame and and they antagonize and they create sensationalist accusations and attempt to smear the reputations of people who are between them and the elite position that they desire. So um, yeah, yeah, that is the, you know, this is the classic criticism of, of woe capital and uh, the PMC. But I want to, we're almost at the hour. I want to throw a question to you. Given the conceit of your article, which I, I think mostly I agree with, um, that there are people, I don't think that they should have a real affiliation to the Democratic Party. And if their interests were better represented by Republicans, then I would encourage them to vote that way. Uh, the, my real skepticism is given the economic prospects of our advanced society. I just, I think things are going to get very bad. I'm calibrating for the worst. And I think people may not be able to accumulate the wealth and property necessary to have something to safeguard, unfortunately. And I, I hope that I'm wrong about that. What would you say would be the biggest hurdle to people making that party crossover? What would be in the way of those disenfranchised left-wingers joining a Republican coalition? Well, I mean, I would think that certainly climate change in theory should be one of the biggest obstacles. I think it'll be interesting to see how how central uh, the fight for abortion rights becomes because the Republican Party has become so extreme on that issue, so uncompromising. Yes. But on the other hand, I also do think it is true, uh, uh, that being said, that like what we were talking about before, where 
you know, a lot of people of our generation are perhaps a little turned off by sort of the modern LGBT rights, by trans rights, and so on and so forth. I think that uh, a lot of Americans are, are far more moderate on the abortion question than I think is often kind of fashionable to concede, even people that vote Democrat, you know, that there's kind of a more kind of sensible middle of the road position that is probably closer than a kind of like extreme, sort of like what we have here in Canada, where just like anything goes. And we may see there's been a few uh, commentators from the Republican media side that are have said that they will vote Democrat if abortion is the only issue in the midterms. Yes, yes. So, so that's, like it, that very well could no, happen. No, very much. And so it, there's a a lot to sort of see how the two parties will sort of attempt to calibrate themselves in a kind of post row era. But definitely like climate change as well. It, like, again, like that is particular to like the really young people. I mean, that it doesn't, as long as that becomes a front and center issue, like as long as like the Democrat party is in some ways branded as being the, the, the party that's serious about climate change. And then the Republican party is the party that is not like, I, I do think that that becomes a very difficult uh, chasm to cross. Are these guys really serious about climate change? Well, though? I don't know. I mean, say like, well, see, <laughs> I there, don't know. there we go, right? Like, is anybody serious see, about it? We'll yeah. see that, and see like that. This is very important, right? Like, if if the if the dominant sort of narrative becomes that, well, you know, this is not really an issue that's being adjudicated in the political process one way or another, then you can kind of put it aside, and then you can fight it over the issues that are being adjudicated by the political process, which may be nothing more than you know who hates Jeff Bezos more, or you know whatever, right? Like this kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm hopeful that a giant jobs creation program in the form of a maybe it's not the Green New Deal, maybe it's something similar in the future. But this is uh, it rolls all these things into one where it creates the jobs, it creates economic opportunity for a declining middle class, and it makes the best attempt at confronting the climate situation that we have. The challenge, the yeah, challenge yeah, is ultimately a very long road. Sorry. And just one thing, like the challenge ultimately for, for people like you, people that have an interest in, in promoting that kind of political vision uh, is marketing, right? Like this is something that I think the left wing often does not want to admit is that they are very bad at marketing, right? Like they have a hard time selling their big ambitious agenda that may very well be good for the, the betterment of the country and the world. But you know, they have to come up with a way to make it persuasive and attractive to these kind of moderate swing voters in the middle, in the suburbs, you know, the, the, the boomers, the surviving remnants of the, of the middle class, right? Like you have to be able to make an argument that is attractive to them because we see that that ultimately is the, the, the group. Like there are people in America who, you know, do not perceive the Republican Party and the Democratic Party the way that we do. They perceive it according to a whole host of other stereotypes and cliches and dated assumptions and whatnot and whatnot. So you have to be able to make a pitch that kind of concedes some of their priors as opposed to only making a pitch that is attractive to other podcasters or whatever, right? It's, it's, it's the challenge of, of retail politics of, of, of marketing and, and marketing in a democratic society, like it or not, is a huge component part of politics. There's other ways that this works as well, too, that uh, Clinton was able to uh, eviscerate welfare in a way that Reagan never could. You know, a lot of times these parties pick up on the proposals of the other. And one of my favorite contrarianisms is that um, the Republicans are going to be the ones to pass a national health service because this will actually be an austerity measure in that Americans are spending way too much on their health care. And we're going to have to do, you know, all of us, the, the great owners of industry in uh, American society and at the seat of the table for the Republicans, um, 
we're going to have to do a little bit of belt tightening. And Bob, who owns all of the healthcare industry in the US, is very bloated and is taking too much off the table. So he's got to leave a larger piece of the pie for everyone. And what that results in is cost saving for the consumers and larger profits for everybody else at the table. But um, if that happens through the Republican Party rather than the Democrats, it's, uh, yes. yeah, it becomes an interesting, twisted, labyrinthian so name. It sounds like, sounds yeah. like, a, sounds like <laughs> old man Joshua has come up with his permission structure to start voting Republican. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know if I'll you know if there's somebody from uh, the DSA Red Caucus that uh, yeah runs on the Republican ticket I would have no hesitation but otherwise um, yeah I don't have I, I have affiliations to causes but I don't have party affiliations in my sense. JJ, thank you for making the time to chat. This has been super interesting. Yeah, it's a blast. And I'm I'm now just a parasocial fan of your content because oh. I've really enjoyed watching your videos and everything. Same so with me. Uh, do you want to give a few plugs? And I, I'm sure people are familiar with your work on YouTube, but um, what else do you have coming? Uh, yeah, basically, that's it. And uh, I'm on YouTube. I'm on the Washington Post. If you Google my name, I'm sure that you'll you'll be able to find that stuff without too much trouble. And and like I said, Joshua, we're like right back at you. I've become a big fan of your content. I think you're an amazing creative individual who's doing remarkable things. Things, so I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks, man.